0: Well, sometime, I think in the summer, toward the beginning of the summer, we took a break in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, we had some four or five weeks looking at uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, and I think it was verse 12, and those uh, duties that uh, Moses said were the things the Lord required of the nation, and uh, the centerpiece was to love God, and around that was to fear Him and to serve Him with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength uh, to keep his, his His commandments and statutes, and There was one other one. I think, well, did I mention to fear him? That's in there too. Anyway, so there were those uh, duties that were really part of, um, I think what I referenced, uh, Paul says, um, your spiritual services, your reasonable service, the kind of service that we're called upon to render to the Lord uh, who has done such great things for us. And uh, then as we were supposed to come back to Jeremiah, uh, there were just things that just got in the way, including health matters. But we're here. We're here tonight. And it is my intention to get back in the study of Jeremiah. We just got into sort of the middle of chapter two, maybe a little bit further on than the middle in our previous studies. And I thought what I would do tonight, uh, since I spent a good bit of time over the summer uh, doing a lot of Jeremiah reading, I tried to make myself very much conversant with uh, the whole spectrum of thought and uh, scholarship with respect to the book of Jeremiah. And it was an exercise that sometimes was a little tedious and difficult, but also was edifying. Because I think I've come to understand the book in ways I never understood it before. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a peek into the things that were most helpful to me, that I hope will be most helpful to you, uh, by way of uh, just an, a reintroduction to Jeremiah. Let's call it that. I think when we began the book, I gave you an introduction. I told you a bunch of things about the book of Jeremiah. Well, now we're getting reacquainted. Okay, so this is a reintroduction uh, to the book in which I'm going to give you some new introductory material that's new to me, and I trust will be new to you. If you told me you knew all this before, I'd be very surprised, but I'd be glad if you've done some reading on it yourself and you knew about, about all this stuff. And uh, what I want to do in terms of this new introductory material is, is I want to say something about the two Jeremiah's, The two Jeremiah's. Does that have your interest? There are actually two books of Jeremiah. So I have to say something about those two books. Secondly, say something about uh, the style of Jeremiah's writing. This is what we call genre, um, and the way he weaves together, particularly in the first part of the book, poetry and prose. And we'll say something about that. And then I'll tell you something about the structure of the book, how the book is structured. And um, so I think all of that is new to me, and I hope it's, new, it's insightful. I, I think this is good stuff. First of all, the two Jeremiahs, what's that all about? Well, in um, the transmission of the Old Testament, uh, uh, we don't really get the full picture of how things really stand with the text of the books of the Old Testament. Um, you know, we talk about the New Testament documents, and the New Testament documents are really quite recent in comparison to the time that they were written. So we have copies of Mark that probably go into the 2nd century, they are written in the first century. We have copies of, or, or fragments of the book of John, fragments of the Pauline epistles. And we go back to those most early discoveries of the text, and uh, you know, some places completed books, and you just see that uh, they, there's a far more agreement than disagreement, though there are those areas of textual variance. And there's a whole science of attempting to discover what was likely to be Paul's original writings, and there's all kinds of rules that are set up for that purpose. But we really have documents very close to the time of their writings. And so people that want to just fault the New Testament because we don't have the original, we call them the original autographs, the actual things that Mark wrote and Paul wrote, we don't have those letters. We have copies. But th- those copies are reasonable facsimiles is really on display by the fact that we have these documents so close to their original writings. I mean, we have other stuff as well. We have the writings of the Church Fathers, in which they quote their, their copies of the Bible. And uh, so we have lots of information in terms of having a reasonable facsimile of the things that they wrote. And the fact is, nobody questions Homer, although you know, his Iliad or his Odyssey are copies of that or much Further away from the time of the original writings, and yet people say that's Homer. We have a reasonable facsimile in the documents we have of the original writing of the Iliad or the Odyssey. Um, and that's true with most of the writings of the ancient world. However, the New Testament is quite a different story. Um, our copies of the original text of the Hebrew Old Testament is that which is called the Masoretic text. Why is it called the Masoretic text? Well, there were a bunch of Jewish scholars and scribes that were called Masoretes. Masoretes. And these Masoretes, uh, these Masoretic uh, scholars and scribes, uh, they, were, they copied texts, and they also were responsible, I think, for much in the way of um, understanding the Orthodox teaching among the Jews and things like that. They, they were teachers as well as scribes and copyists. But the copies we have of what's called the Masoretic text, they go to the 9th century A.D., 9th century AD not BC. You know all the Old Testament was BC. You know Isaiah th- was in the 8th century BC. So you have 8 centuries till you get them to the 1st century, then 9 centuries more. And the latest copies we had uh, or the earliest copies we had of the Hebrew Bible was that Masoretic text. And so there's always the question, did the Jewish people of the Old Testament time have as many different variations as we tend to have in terms of the Christian New Testament. And lo and behold, there was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls brought our copies of the of the Old Testament back to the time of the Qumran community, who settled in at the Dead Sea and put these put these writings in the caves where they were found. And when those writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the various caves, Um, it was discovered that you'd say about 60% of all of the Old Testament books they found, Isaiah, the Psalms, uh, Jeremiah as well, uh, agreed with the Masoretic text. At least 60%, more than half, gave full agreement with what we had already as our understanding of what the text of the Old Testament was. But there were other things that had different variations and particularly because in the 2nd century B.C., there was the translation of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language. And the Greek language Bible, uh, called the Septuagint, got called the Septuagint because, interestingly enough, the notion was there were 70 scholars, so 70 sept, it was, it was seven in, in, uh, and so the, these 70 scholars supposedly all different scholars went their own separate ways, wrote their translations, and came up with the exact same thing. And so a great miracle occurred. You think the King James Bible is a work of wonder, which has an absolute authority? Well, it's in the minds of Greek-speaking Jews. Septuagint. That's it. it. came from heaven. God gave it to these 70 men to all agree. A miracle was done, so we have no uncertainty about the nature of of the Old Testament text. It's the Septuagint and none other. But there are areas, and, and it's interesting, that the, the, the biblical writers in the New Testament frequently quote from the Septuagint, even in areas where it disagrees with the Hebrew Bible. I mean, get, it's still God's Word, even when translation difficulties or differences come into play. Uh, the basic tenor of God's Word is still there in the Septuagint. But there is the whole question, particularly with Jeremiah studies, which version of Jeremiah do we accept as original? Because there were two copies of the book of Jeremiah found in the caves of Qumran that differed with one another. One of them was a really good correspondence with the Masoretic text, the the one that we use, the one that's in our Bibles. But there was another one that was in portions that were in three of the caves that uh, differed and agreed more with the Septuagint. Now the Septuagint, we've known this problem for years because we knew about the Greek translation and we knew about the Masoretic text and we knew that in the translation of the Septuagint, uh, Jeremiah was reduced in size. About uh, 7% of the book of Jeremiah is not found in that Greek translation. And also there is a different order of the chapters Masoretic text, Septuagint, pretty much agreed on the first 25 chapters. But after chapter 25, what is called the Oracle of the Nations, that's found in, I think it's 47, I think it is where it starts, and it goes to chapter 51. We've got the, the the oracles against uh, Babylon, and uh, well, that's in 50 51. But uh, the other nations that surrounded Israel, like you had in, uh, remember we had that in Ezekiel the oracles against the nations. You also had that in Isaiah. Um, many of the prophets have these oracles toward uh, concerning foreign nations. Not that they were, they were sent to foreign nations. Uh, usually they were nations that taunted Israel in their defeat at the hands of the Babylonians. And God's saying, in essence, time's coming, they're going to be judged and they're going to get theirs. But it's also the notes of hope that the people of those lands would ultimately become the people of God. Like Isaiah 19, as part of the oracles against the nations, in which he, Assyria and Egypt, they all come together with the Jews. And, and actually, Israel becomes third in line in, in terms of God's preferences for Egypt, Egyptians and Assyrians. But they're all received. They're all received into the people of God. And so there is that whole hope of Gentile inclusion. The nations will come to be the people of God. God is not a tribal God. Israel's God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the nations. And ultimately, all the nations will come to know him. We're to make disciples of the nations. That's really the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies or those Old Testament words concerning oracles to the nations. God cares about the nations, and the gospel goes to the nations. But anyway, um, there are these differences between the two Jeremiah's. Well, which one's the real Jeremiah? Well, the real Jeremiah, please stand up. If you remember, what was it, to tell the truth? When you had uh, two guys that were lying and one guy was telling the truth, well, the real whoever it is, please stand up. Well, we can't ask the real Jeremiah to stand up; he's not with us. But we can yet discern which Jeremiah is the real one. One of the things that uh, scholars use to determine the uh, reading is the question of what's called well, it's it's just the difficulty of the reading, and the more difficult reading usually gets the preference. Isn't that, isn't that strange? You'd think the easier reading would be the one that gets the preference. But actually, in modern scholarship, the thought is that it is the easier reading that probably was the switcheroo, that when the translators of the Septuagint read Jeremiah and said, well, we don't get that, or we don't understand why that's there, they would probably sooner smooth it out to something simpler or easier or more understandable or more in sync with their theology then it would be the other way around. They wouldn't wouldn't take an easy reading and make the easy reading hard. They would take what for for them would be the hard reading and look to make it easy. Well, there's a couple of things that would be hard things for the translators of the Septuagint uh, when they face the Masoretic text. Um, Again, I should have told you this. The Septuagint was translated in Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria was a great college town. It was a great university city. It had the famous library of Alexandria. It had philosophers, uh, a Jewish philosopher by the name of Philo, uh, hailed from Alexandria. And he was one who sought to bring the philosophy of the Greeks, the learning of the Greeks, and look to say either Moses read Plato or Plato read Moses, but they're in sync with one another. And he looked to make the religion of Israel very similar to the philosophy of the Greeks. Now, if you knew the philosophy of the Greeks, you would know that one of the things they thought about the deity is that the deity was very distant, very transcendent, and it would be unlike the deity to express himself in terms of God's word in this sort of emotional baggage that we have as human beings and and sinners, that that God would not be like that. Um, We do think of an impassibility in God in which his supremacy and his transcendence um, um, is real, but yet he also expresses himself to us in the terminology that we're familiar with. And much of that terminology, as God speaks in our language, does speak of things like grief, and sadness and tears that the Lord experiences. And there's several passages in Jeremiah where you have not only the lamentations of Jeremiah, Jeremiah pouring out his heart in grief, but seemingly echoing a God who shares the grief of a nation under siege and sympathizes with his people in ways of emotional involvement. Now, that would probably be something that the translators of the Masoretic text into Greek would probably say, well, well, yeah, if Yahweh said it, it doesn't really, it wouldn't really fit very well with the Greek mind, so let's change it. And a lot of those passages are part of the 7% of Jeremiah that's not there in the Greek translation. Another thing that's in the Greek translation that likely the translators dropped was the passages in the oracles of, of, against the nations in which God speaks of His judgments. But almost in the Masoretic text, in your Bibles, the translations we have in our laps and in our hands, almost every one of those oracles of against the nations ends with hope that those nations will become the people of God. And even though God says hard things to those nations. He also expresses a word of grace to those nations. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it's not there. They took it out. Now you would think the proud Jews would probably not want to think that anybody but the Jews would have these covenant blessings of God. And uh, they would probably think, well, look, the nations don't like us. We don't like them. So we'll just simply take it out. And it's more likely it would go that way than the other way around. Now, I'm not, to me, this is important, not just because this is, it, it's interesting. I hope you think it's interesting. It is an interesting thing to see the differences in those texts and translations and just what is the more likely one. But the switcheroo that the Septuagint did with taking the oracles against the nations and bringing them forward to chapter 26 and moving the stuff that's after that further back, to me, it, it disrupts what I think is the flow of the book What I'm trying going to tell you about uh, later about the structure of the book. So just keep that in mind. We we want the Oracles of the Nations to be exactly where it is in the Masoretic text, not just because we prefer it. I think it helps us to see the flow of 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 Jeremiah, and if and in fact that flow probably isn't just a question of the way uh, uh, translators put it together, but the way the Holy Spirit, I think. Put it together, and I think it helps us to understand the book a bit better. And I'll tell you why, uh, just in a moment. I do also did mention, uh, I'd say something about the style or the genre. And uh, in this, you'll see that there's there's a distinction between the first 25 chapters and uh, chapter 26 to the end of the chapter. Um, you look at uh, a section here. I'm, I just opened it to uh, Jeremiah 11 and 12 okay. Uh, what you have in 11 and 12 when well, you, you come to the end of, of 10 you'll see the way the book is structured if you look, look up here and you can see, um, well maybe you can't see it but see it in your own Bibles if you have a Bible that puts poetry in poetic form not like prose but in poetic form with stanzas and, and such um, you'll see that much of chapter 10 is poetry, but every now and again there's uh, a bit of prose that puts here. In chapter 10, you have verse 11, Thus shall you say to them, The God who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. That you have a bit of prose that's stuck in. And then in chapter 11, it begins with all prose down to the first 17 verses, and then poetry begins in 18 to 20, then prose uh, concludes in 20 to twenty. Three, and then in chapter 12 it starts again with poetry uh, really down to the thir- 13 verses and in 14 uh, it's a prose section again and that prose section goes all the way into chapter 13 what do you have? you have alternating poetry and prose now most of the books of the Bible really don't have that I mean you go to Isaiah and there's chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter poetry and then you have a prose section usually the prose section were, were things like uh, chapters uh, thirty. Uh, 6 to 30, uh, uh, 39, where the, you know, the, it was the history section that you also find in the book of 1 uh, Kings, where the Assyrians come against uh, the city of Jerusalem, uh, Sennacherib and his crowd coming to look to uh, threaten Hezekiah. And you have Hezekiah going into the temple and praying the prayer and laying, laying down uh, the Rapshaka's letter before the Lord. That's all prose section. But you have chapters of prose followed by chapters of poetry, but you don't have this sort of intermingling that you have in Jeremiah. And some of the poetry is difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult to translate. It's difficult to understand. A lot of the poetry is lamentations. You find lamentations is one of the great types of poetry you find in the book of Psalms, the lament psalms. What are lament psalms? Well, they're psalms of complaint. They come from a heart of grief. A heart that's experienced hardship and persecution. You think of the kind of hardships that the generation that Jeremiah is addressing were about to experience. The Babylonians taking them into captivity. They'd lose their land. They'd lose their kingdom. They'd lose their temple. They'd lose you know, their homes. They'd, they'd be taken away into a foreign land. I mean, think about the things that happened happening now in the Ukraine. Uh, people in Ukraine just being up and, and removed out from their homes and taken to Russia. What a traumatic thing that would be. What, what uh, trauma people would experience. It's tantamount to anything. A soldier returning from, you know, a war would experience. Of course, those people have also experienced the war. And, of course, the Judah would experience war. the war. The steel of uh, chariots of the Babylonians would bring destruction, bring the sword and famine and all the rest that would come upon the land. When that sort of thing happens, and you begin to express your angst out of a heart of deep grief and trauma, you don't always articulate stuff in the clearest of ways. And so I think Jeremiah is just giving vent to the fact this book of God is also a book that comes in the language of men. Traumatized people speak in ways that traumatized people usually speak. And the poetry, I think, reflects that. And I think what the prose does is the prose becomes explanatory words that come in the midst of the poetry in which Jeremiah is saying, now this is how you understand all that's going on here. So I think it's interpret, it helps to interpret, it helps to explain all the poetry. And then the poetry, some of it is great, it's beautiful, it's powerful. But some of it's confusing, and I think the explanatory words come in just for that purpose of helping to open it up and to explain exactly what's happening. So that's why you have, I think, the alternation between prose and poetry. It's all God's word, um, but I think the prose is very helpful as uh, keys to, of understanding, keys to properly interpret uh, what's going on in the book. Now we move on to the final new thing that I want to say to you by way of a reintroduction of the book. And that's the structure of the book. And that's really the hardest thing. I didn't give you an outline of Jeremiah. And I'm not going to give you a detailed one now. But I'm going to try to give you at least a sense of what the book's about. Now, oh, I should have pointed out, uh, we have up to chapter 25 that alternating pattern of poetry and prose. Uh, Now turn... Uh, to chapter um twenty-six. Twenty six. I think you have one one little bit of poetry at verse uh, eighteen. But otherwise it's what? It's prose. Right? It's prose. Chapter twenty-seven is prose. Twenty-eight is prose. Twenty-nine is prose. You come to thirty, which that becomes the book of consolation you have some poetry there but it's mostly poetry it's not alternating poetry and prose uh, 30 31 um, uh, really till you get to the new covenant in verse 31 or a little bit before 24 and following is prose and then some more poetry follows but it's it's like the the, the other prophets it's mainly one or the other it's not both it's not this alternating pattern so 21 Uh, chapter 1 to 25 is its own thing and 26 to 52 is its own thing but what is the thing that it is well and sometimes prose helps and one of the things we find in prose in the opening chapter of the book which is Jeremiah's commission and call is that God assigns Jeremiah his work and the work that he's given to do is twofold uh, six Hebrew verbs are found in Jeremiah chapter 1. Now let's turn there. Jeremiah chapter 1. Oh, man. You know, it's funny because Jeremiah is a much longer book than Isaiah. But you think if when you, you, you know, in one of the early chapters, you, you get to chapter, uh, chapter 1 in a hurry, but you don't because these are long chapters. Uh, Isaiah 66 chapters, but they're all much shorter. Je- 52 chapters of Jeremiah, but they're all really long chapters. But in chapter 1, I'm, oh, I, it's wrong, I'm wrong. It is in poetry, not prose. But God does set out uh, Jeremiah's task when in verse 9, uh, Yahweh puts out his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Um, again, Jeremiah, you're my man to bring my word to nations and kingdoms and you to do so with authority. You're over them. You're bringing God's word to these peoples, to these nations. But what's, this, what's the end? What's, what's, what's the work that he's going to do? Well, pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow. Four words that says, I, Jeremiah, your work is to break things. Your work is to dismantle. Your work is to tear stuff apart. And then, to build it to plant. Now, it's hard to build it to plant when you're going around destroying things. If you're looking to destroy <laughs> something, you know, you're know not putting a garden in places you're looking to destroy. You're tearing it down. So there has to be something sequential in all of this. There has to be a ministry of Tearing down, overthrowing, a ministry of plucking up, a ministry of destruction that's followed by a ministry of building and planting. And when you read the first 25 chapters, you know what you find? Lots of things get broken. Lots of things get dismantled. Everything in the life of the nation of Judah is torn to smithereens. Let me give you something of an example. Chapter 7 to 10, the temple. Jeremiah is told to go up to the temple and to preach about the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were trusting in the temple as being the reason Babylonians won't come and destroy us. Look at what happened when Hezekiah went into the temple and prayed. The temple is our safety. The temple is our confidence. And Jeremiah says, oh no, that's not true. Temple's going to be destroyed. Temple's going to be dismantled. Temple's not going to save you from the judgment that's to come. Let the false prophets speak these lies. But the truth is, you're not finding security in the fact that you have a temple. Dismantling of the temple in 7 to 10. There's this dismantling of the covenant relationship in 11 to 17. These people were covenant breakers. the, the, The breaking of the covenant and God's judgment was going to come upon the people, though they had this close, intimate relationship uh, to God. Um, it was no longer going to be. And, and that's followed by the dismantling of the privileged position that Israel held. Maybe think of them as the chosen people, the nation, elected by God. And so you have the dismantling of their election, the overturning of that privileged place and position that the people had. And then you have the dismantling of the kingship the throne of David, the Davidic kings, Isaiah sent to them and basically telling them that Hananiah is wrong. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's going to die in two years anyway, and what he's telling you is going to come about is not going to come about. What I'm telling you it will come about, and the fact that it will, he's dying in two years, and when two years elapsed and he was dead, you know that you had a prophet among them. So Isaiah is really clear that these kings were unfaithful shepherds and they had to be um, removed that's chapter 23 that talks about the king the the shepherds of Israel the unfaithful shepherds that, that those were the kings the kings of the nations had not done their job and they're getting kicked out and they're getting replaced and God's going to bring a faithful shepherd king to govern over his people and chapter 25 just deals with the final destruction of the whole thing of the Babylonian onslaught and um, the full, final destruction of the people. So you have all this destruction going on. Why? That's Jeremiah's commission. Jeremiah I've set you over the nation and kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. But wait a minute, doesn't he also have a ministry to build and to plant? That's 26 to 52. 26 to 52 is the positive program of building and planting, emerging out of a shattered people, a people destroyed by the Babylonian um, captivity, hope rises. Hope rises. And where does it arise from? Well, it doesn't arise from Jerusalem. The city's destroyed. The people've been taken into captivity. The temple's destroyed. Where's the hope to come from? It's to come among the captive peoples. So among the captive peoples remember Jeremiah writes a letter to the captive peoples in chapter 29 basically telling them they just hunker down for the duration you to settle in you to live in houses you to plant plant gardens you to have children you, know, you to seek the peace of the city where you've been sent and in their peace you'll you'll have peace I have a plan for you I have a purpose for you God's saying that to the captive peoples so God's given hope. He's given hope to a people in captivity. There's a sense in which you have the trauma of captivity, and then you have recovery from captivity, A recovery from the trauma of captivity. How do those people survive? In the midst of all that they've gone through, in the midst of all that they've experienced. Well, Jeremiah sets forth the hope. And then you have in 30 to 33, a, a separate section, remember we looked at it, that, that was all in poetry, or mostly in poetry. It's called the Book of Consolation. It's always been called the Book of Consolation. But it makes sense that the Book of Consolation is not going to be found in the first 25 chapters. That's breaking things down. But now we're building up. And we're building up in terms of consolation. And what's the consolation? Well, the consolation is that God is going to bring restoration about God's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that he made with their fathers in the wilderness, which covenant they broke. He's going to make an unbreakable covenant based upon better promises, as the book of Hebrews says. God's going to put his law in their minds and in their hearts. No No longer will they have to say to their neighbors, know the Lord, they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And God will forgive their iniquities and forgive their sins and remember them no more. Uh, those are the blessings of the new covenant that God says will come uh, when God ushers in a new covenant based upon better promises. In 34 and 35, again, there's more teaching that uh, Isaiah does, uh, Jeremiah does, uh, for the exile peoples. Um, there's another section that comes in that centers on the figure of the scribe, Baruch and the things that uh, he's called to do, and the things that Jeremiah uses him to do in terms of the writing of Jeremiah's words, uh, the speaking of Jeremiah's words in the temple. Uh, there's the Baruch section. Again, that too is filled with hope and promise. Baruch himself is given hope and promise, not to see great things for himself, but to see great things for God, and in so doing, he will have his life spared. There's hope even given to Baruch. It's a section of hope. And then the oracles to the nations, although a lot of them are downers, those oracles to the nations, they always end on a positive note of God doing something wonderful uh, for the nations. And then there is the final word of chapter 52. And so, again, the program of Jeremiah's commission is expressed in words that really express the content of the book. Jeremiah is writing the book in a way that tells how he went about this work of breaking down, plucking up, destroying and overthrowing, and then the program of building and planting, which is the work of restoration. And and that's the reason I saw that, and I was amazed to see it in 2 Corinthians. You know what I'm thinking about, what we did in 2 Corinthians. All these things I've been looking at in Jeremiah in terms of how he structures the book and what his book is about— you see, Paul taking up that language in the book of Second Corinthians uh, to a church that there's some question: exactly how are they going to? How is this all going to go? Are, are they going to listen to these teachers that are bringing a different Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel, or are they going to be righted with their 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 their, their founding uh, father in the faith and uh, who has brought them the word of Christ? And are they going to be a church that will experience? You might think exile in terms of being excommunicated. You know, Jesus takes the lampstands away from these places in the book of Revelation. He said, I'll take their lampstand away unless they repent. Well, there was a need for the people there to also get right and to repent. And and Paul's words to them were words that the authority he had been given was not to be the destroyer. It was not to tear down, but to build up. And in that context, he tells them to pray for their restoration and to aim for their restoration. That's all Jeremiah. Jeremiah's program, at least the positive part, is Paul's commission. How Paul understands his work. There's a sense in which Jesus tore down principalities and powers and dominion and all things that... that, uh, exalt themselves against the name of God and the name of Christ. Uh, Those things were dealt a death blow at the cross. And the missionaries of the gospel now come with this positive program based upon Christ's death and resurrection to do that work of the building of the church. I will build my church, Jesus says, uh, I, as a wise master builder, Paul says, "I lead the foundation of the foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Others can come and build upon it. They need to take heed of the materials that they use. But it's a positive work of building and planning. Now, those are the words that are often used in scripture for the work of gospel proclamation. Edification is building up, planting, things grow, uh, those are the pictures that are given of how the church of Jesus is planted in the world and the church of Jesus is built and founded and flourishes in the world. And then that's Paul's program. And that brings me to something of the review that we did, uh, of the things we did already. Um, because I've sought to make an emphasis in the studies that we did, uh, just to remind you of it, that Paul does see himself as kind of like a Jeremiah figure. Uh, I don't think we could read Jeremiah and not see parts of it that really have their their fulfillment perhaps or their, their counterpart in the New Testament in the figure of Paul in the first place the book of Jeremiah is probably the most autobiographical book that we have in the Old Testament we just don't know a whole lot about of Isaiah of Jerusalem <laughs> we, know pro- we know something of the traditions about him but it's not a book of self-disclosure. That's a book about Yahweh. It's a book about divine plan, divine purpose, divine promise. Um, you don't really know a whole lot about Ezekiel except the crazy things God told him to do and that he did. That has led people in the modern world to think he was the mad prophet. I don't think he was the mad prophet at all. But God had purposes to teach lessons to the nation through some of those strange things that he was asked to do or called upon to do. But Anyway, you have a lot of that in Jeremiah, but you have Jeremiah opening his heart. Jeremiah speaking of his own troubles, cursing the day he was born, when the report came to his father that a man-child is born. Cursed be that day. A lot, of, a lot of his... That's That's Job. That's Job's frustrations. That's Job's lamentations. So you have all those personal lamentations. Why did God, God set me up for a fall? He deceived me, he'll say. He sent me to preach and look at the trouble I've gotten into. Although God warned him he'd get into that trouble. It's almost as if he didn't believe it. Now he's in that position. And he's opening up his heart. He's being honest in the presence of God. And he's, uh, he's pouring out his heart. And that's not unlike Paul's letters. Paul tells so much about himself, so much about his own biography, so much about his own hardships and difficulties and frustrations uh, Paul very, very much uh, if you patterned his letters upon any of the Old Testament prophets it would be Jeremiah and not any of the others and then the very fact that he expresses his call in Jeremiah terms of course in Galatians that he was set apart from his mother's womb called by God's grace to preach his son to the nations and that's exactly what God called Jeremiah to do as a prophet for your mother's womb I set you apart I consecrated you I called you to be what? A prophet to the nations. Paul was sent to the nations. Jeremiah was sent to the nations. Although Paul literally was sent to the nations, Jeremiah was sent to the nations, having authority over the nations through his prophetic words. That's how, that's how Paul expresses his call. And so much of Jeremiah's frustration that he would just not be any longer speaking in his name, and yet there was in him this, this need, this compelling force that uh, is really comparable to Paul's statement, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I've been given the stewardship. I can't turn my back on it. I can't say I haven't been given it. There's within me something that must preach the gospel. That's very Jeremiah-like. And uh, we have a number of those things. that Again, the building up rather than tearing down. Again, it goes back to the book of Jeremiah. So, Uh, And uh, you constantly see these things. You constantly see these relations. There's more that's there. And we'll uncover them as we go a bit, you know, as we make our way through. But we'll see a lot of Paul in the book of Jeremiah. And then, uh, of course, we also see Jesus in the book of Jeremiah. Because there was something about Jesus' ministry. When people were asked, when his own disciples were asked, Who do people say that I am? What did they say? John the Baptist raised from the dead. Herod thought that. The guilt of his own heart made him think. He put John to death, and God's raised him, and he's now come back to haunt me. (laughs) His guilty conscience was speaking. Others say you're what? Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You would think they'd say Isaiah or one of the prophets, but they don't say that. They don't say Ezekiel or one of the prophets, or Zechariah or one of the prophets. They say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And it's likely Jesus' ministry of dismantling the temple. John tells us that began his ministry. The other Gospels say it ended his ministry. It took a prominent part, maybe both the beginning and the end of the ministry. Jesus went into the temple, like Jeremiah went into the temple, and he was looking to tear things apart. Um, he's looking to dismantle this old system. Uh, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. That sounds an awful lot about Jer- like Jeremiah Not so much the raising it up, but the tearing it down. Just tear it down. Um, So there were things that had a parallel. Uh, Jeremiah's temple ministry reminded people of of the Lord. Um, Maybe the promises of the faithful shepherd reminded people of Jesus. Um, I'm sure there are other things. Uh, He shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Certainly people that have read Paul will see Jeremiah in Jesus. So there are these correlations between Jeremiah and our Lord and the apostle Paul and we should just have our antenna up to see them when we come upon them. And then and I think that's also make, it makes the book interesting when we're looking for things like that. Again, we're not always going to find them, and don't don't spend too much time doing that, but uh, have your antenna up that there may be things there that you'll you you'll see. Don't be surprised when you see them. And then the other thing that was a formative aspect of it it is uh, the book of Deuteronomy the book of Deuteronomy and again the ministry of Jeremiah was a ministry of some 40 years and it began in about 620 BC in the reign of Josiah that's what we're told in chapter 1 and verse 3 um, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and um, In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. That's when the prophetic word came to Jeremiah. That's when he began his ministry. And that's about 620 BC. When did his ministry end? Well, it was sometime after the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He lived through it. And after the city was destroyed, he was taken captive and taken down into Egypt. And so it was an Egyptian ministry that followed. But when did the destruction of Jerusalem take place? Well, 584 B.C., or 585, somewhere around there. Anyway, so you have about 14, 15 years on that side, and then another 20 years on the other side, and then you have some years in Egypt. So it's a 40-year ministry. It's a 40-year ministry. But it's a 40-year ministry that began in the reign of Josiah. Now, what do we remember Josiah for? Who can tell me? King Josiah, what did he do? Looking to refurbish the temple, clean it out from all of its abuses, and he found the book of the law. He found the book of the law. Now, it was the book of Deuteronomy that was said to be the book of the law that was to be kept in the temple. Copy of this book of the law. And it's probably not referring to the whole of the. of the Torah, but that particular scroll that contained the book of Deuteronomy, that uh, second giving of the law, that's what was found. And um, I really think when we have in chapter 15, I think it's in verse 10, that expression where Jeremiah says, Your words were found, and I did eat them, and your word became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Now, the usual formula of God's word coming to Jeremiah is that the word of the Lord came to me saying, um, but here it's not just the word of the Lord came to me, but your word was found. Oh, who found it? Where? Well, Josiah found it, or Hilkiah found it, the priest found it in the temple, presented it to Jeremiah, and that became the catalyst for the reforms in the days of Jeremiah. So here's a man beginning his ministry in the days of, I'm sorry, the days of Josiah the king when these reforms were taking place and the re- these reforms that were sparked by the book of Deuteronomy. And he said, I ate your words. I ate them. And the word became to me, the joy and rejoicing of my heart. He, and he asked Jeremiah, Jeremiah, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Now, he knew other books of the Bible. Uh, there's a section, I think I don't know if Jeremiah said it, I think someone else said it, th- about the words of uh, Micah the Morasheth. Uh, So the book of Micah is actually referred to in the book of Jeremiah. I think that's in the section with the interaction with the kings in 23, 24, something like that, 25. Um, It it may be elsewhere, but it's there. It's there in the book. So there was an awareness of the other prophets. There was the awareness of other books of the Bible that are alluded to and referred to. But principally, Deuteronomy is the perspective from which Jeremiah's prophecies come from. And i try tried to explain, at least in chapter 2, you have that picture of God, the jilted lover, of the nation who uh, was his bride, the joy of your espousals. You went after me in the wilderness. And uh, most people look at that and say, well, this is some idealized picture. Because the actual picture in the book of Exodus was of a nation that was hard-hearted and stiff-necked. Now, Jeremiah knows that, but he sees it from the Deuteronomy perspective, from the perspective of the second generation. Remember that first generation that did the golden calf bit and did the bit of not going up into the land because they were afraid of these giants in the land. They died off in the wilderness. Now they're in the plains of Moab, about to go into the land. That second generation uh, was not like the first generation. Uh, there was not. There was largely a believing generation. The dying stopped. Somewhere along the line in the Book of Numbers, the dying stopped. The plague stopped. The people stopped sinning, and the people stopped dying. They had a lot of dying in the Book of Numbers. The whole generation had to be killed off. The second generation to enter into the land. And so those words would be more appropriate when viewed from the perspective of entering the land of promise, this generation. And it's an interesting thing, when you read the book of Deuteronomy, it's this generation that was the second generation that saw God's mighty works in Egypt. They didn't, but they heard about it, but by faith they saw it, I'd imagine. But it was the second generation. And yet Moses is addressing them as if they experienced these very things. They're part of the covenant nation. They identify with the story of the covenant nation, the history of the covenant nation. All these things are true of them. And so, again, I think you have a different picture. And so, I think you don't just have the nation being idealized, but you have the reality of people that were actually serious about obeying God and following Him and being uh, faithful covenant partners with Him. But then, when you entered the land, all that promise seemed to just get destroyed. Um, But it's from the perspective of Deuteronomy that uh, Jeremiah writes. And so he writes things like you find in chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 1 speaks about uh, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not the land be greatly polluted? Well, read Deuteronomy 24. And you see the law with respect to marriage and divorce. Perfectly reflected here in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. It takes up Deuteronomy 24. Um, there's other things that are like this. Uh, the, the fact that he calls the nation um, heart of heart, I'm sorry, uh, uncircumcised in heart. That echoes that Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, yes, that echoes Deuteronomy. That's the only place, other place in the Old Testament where the language of uncircumcised in heart is found. And there are others, but I'd have to sit here and think a long time to come up with them, but they are definitely there. Um, And so you have all of these influences in Jeremiah's book, um, uh, influences that he has received from the book of Deuteronomy, from the prophecy of Micah, um, but also ways he's been influencing the future generations, particularly uh, the generations who saw in Jesus a figure prefigured in Jeremiah, and also Paul himself sees himself as something of a counterpart uh, to Jeremiah. So look for those things when we read the book. Again, it it, it makes a difficult book a lot more exciting, a lot more interesting, when you see its place within the canon, uh, reading backward to Deuteronomy, reading forward to Jesus and the Gospels, reading forward uh, to Paul. So I'll just set that out to you. I just want to say something about the message of Jeremiah. Again, the message in the first part of the book is dismal. It culminates in the Babylonian destruction of the city and temple. Um, But his message is that the nation was guilty of sin and apostasy before God, of idolatry before God, of broken marriage vows, of God entering into divorce proceedings with this nation. And so you have a message uh, that dwells upon the idolatry and apostasy of the nation. It begins with hope of restoration. Even in the beginning, the prophets are always sent out with the note of hope. Maybe early on in Jeremiah's ministry, the days of Josiah, there was hope. The king himself was bringing in reforms. Maybe there was hope that Good times were in the future. But that came to an end. That came to an end when Josiah dies in battle, uh, endeavoring to fight a war um, uh, against the Assyrians. I'm sorry, against the Babylonians. No, it was for the Babylonians against the Egyptians. It was Pharaoh Necho that actually killed him. Killed him in battle. And then they have the successor kings... His sons, uh, his uncle, um, or his brother—totally not good leaders—and ultimately it all comes apart. And so, sin brings the judgment that comes. Uh, it's not—it's not, it's not it doesn't come uncaused. It doesn't come because God is haphazard or or uh, uh, just doing things out of on whim. It, really, the principles of their disobedience and their covenant breaking come into full play. And not, not that we can explain the God's ways with men with fullness, but God has a plan and a purpose that does bring in the reality of human sin. It also brings in the reality of his redemptive plan and his redemptive program. And both of these things are on full display. There is hope for the future in Jeremiah. There's hope for renewal. There's hope for forgiveness. There's hope that will issue... Uh, the in uh, when a new covenant comes in, when a new exodus comes in, and both of those themes are present in Jeremiah, there will be a new exodus. The time will come, he says, in the future, when no longer people going to say the Lord who brought us out of out of Egypt, they'll say the Lord who brought us out of the north country. There'll be a new deliverance, a new exodus, a new redemptive act of God that will take place, and it will take place in the days. When David comes, when the Messianic King makes his appearance, um, and so it's in the new covenant that uh, Jeremiah uh, prepares us for, uh, with the old covenant being uh, destroyed as a result of human sin, and the new covenant being the need of the hour, the new covenant that comes to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So. As we see it in that sense, we can see Jeremiah's place in the history of the nation of Israel, its place in the canon of the scriptures, and hopefully we can locate its place in scripture better. And um, also um, we can have a structure to it as we read it in understanding the destructive part, the dismantling part of the first 26 chapters, and the positive program of restoration that fills the latter 26 uh, verses uh, twenty six chapters, and again not that that 's an exact you know there's there 's hope and promise earlier on, as well as judgment and destruction later on, but you have more of the of uh, the flavor of destruction and building and planting in uh, those major divisions. Isaiah sprinkles all that stuff through out Jeremiah puts it all in packages. 1 to 26, 26 to 52. Anyway, so I hope this uh, is helpful. I hope it prepares us to get back into the book and uh, benefit from it as we make our way through. So I gave you a review tonight, didn't I? I gave you a reintroduction to the book, and uh, uh, I hope these are things that will be helpful as we proceed. Well, let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful once again that we can return to our study of Jeremiah and pray that in weeks to come we would have a better understanding of this very important book of Holy Scripture and that we would have just an ability to rightly discern its intention as we read it, as we come upon it in our own devotions, as we see the place of this book in the overall canon of Holy Scripture, and that we would see something of the beauty and the, the symmetry, the, the balance, and, and the goodness of uh, your word as we find it in scripture. We thank you for this book and pray that our studies to come will be filled with your blessing, uh, be filled with fruitfulness in our understanding and in our lives. As, and we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the blessings we've known as we've met together in your presence. Dismiss us with your blessing and strengthen us for all that is before us. And the week ahead, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.